Hello, and welcome back to the Real Professional Podcast, the podcast where air quotes real professionals interview non-air quotes real professionals. Uh, we got a good one for you today. We got the uh, Steve Gabry from the Portable Moose himself for Sally Face. And uh, before that, we're going to be talking a little bit about E3 and the uh, Jeff Keighley announcement. So, uh, you know what? Just uh, join us for this just this ride today. And DJ, drop that sick beat. listeners uh and uh i hope you are doing well today uh as i said we got a good one for you today um i'm actually pretty excited about this uh our interview is is really good so uh but before that we we got some interesting uh convention news so uh today i'm joined by uh remy and jesse say hi guys hi hey there i'm jesse i'm remy how, how are you guys doing you guys been uh, playing anything lately well, uh, you tuned me into this game, Darksburg, and I've been playing a little bit of that. It's pretty interesting. Uh, for an early access game, it's pretty damn polished. Uh, you can really see the design qualities shine through. In terms of what it does, it's pretty simple. Uh, I think that there's room for polish, and there's definitely room for a lot of expansion with like a lot of the, the features it's got. Uh, and you, you can see that like this is, this is a pretty well-thought-out game with a solid foundation. I'm enjoying it. Uh, I've been playing Dawn of Fear. It's like Resident Evil, but worse, but in some ways better. Yeah. Uh, mechanically and visually and story-wise and, uh, you know, stylistically and, I mean, really just all of it is bad, but it's, it's really charming and for some reason I really enjoy it. Like, so bad it's good? Yeah. Yeah, kind of. The Trolls 2 of video games? Something like, yeah, exactly. But um, now Trolls 2 has... Trolls 2 is intellectual, like... It's it's a smart movie for smart moviegoers. This is just... It's just a straight rip-off, but it's... uh, I don't know. It's hard to describe because every part of it is bad. And then... I can't not say that it's a shit game, but I really enjoyed it nonetheless. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. No, I, I feel you there. Um, I've just been playing uh, Journey to Savage Planet and having a really good time with that. Journey to the Savage Planet. It's uh, it's like kind of like Pokemon Snap mixed with Metroid. Super fun. Anyways, uh, so uh, I think we're just going to go ahead and get into our big story for the week. Uh so let's just go ahead and get into some news, 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 news. Sick news music. I don't really think is the biggest story 
of the week, I'd say, but it is the most discussable story of the week. So uh, for those of you out there that don't know, uh, Jeff Keighley recently announced that he wouldn't be going to uh, E3 2020. So if you're if you're not familiar, Jeff Keighley is kind of old man video games journalism, and uh, he's only forty, but he's been doing it forever. Um, and he recently released an announcement that states, and I'll read it here. This is on his Twitter. You can find it. Uh, this is a statement from Jeff Keighley on E3. For the past twenty five years, I've attended every electronic entertainment expo. That's E3. Covering, hosting, and sharing E3 has always been a highlight of my year, not to mention a defining part of my career. I've debated what to say about E3 2020. While I want to support the developers who will showcase their work, I also need to be open and honest with you, the fans, about precisely what to expect from me. I have made the difficult decision to decline to produce E3 Coliseum. For the first time in 25 years, I will not be participating in E3. I look forward to supporting the industry in other ways and other and other events in the future. So, of course, he then you know started a, a subtweet. I don't even know what it's called when you have the tweet that's under a tweet. It says, if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer here on social. And people were asking him, you know, like, why? And uh, basically, it all boils down to a, a ton of factors. I just don't really feel comfortable participating, given what I know about the show as of today. Uh, so Jeff Keighley is dropping out. It's kind of a big deal. A lot of people online are saying this means E3 is dead. The world's over. No more E3 for us forever. And, um, of course I think that's a vast exaggeration, but, uh, yeah, first off, just hip reaction. What do you guys think? I did not even know his name. I thought it was Jeff Knightley, um, because I could not even be asked to look at spelling of his own name. Like, that's how little I am plugged into the um, international gaming conspiracy uh, cabal. And, um, you know, first of all, just, I mean, he seems like a very milk toast guy. Um, he's not very, you know, he doesn't have a... I mean, I, I guess I just don't really know about him. I mean, I've seen his very... Uh, sad gaunt looking face um and i've seen the name um but beyond that uh i don't really know i mean i i hope he's moving on to greener pastures um because i don't need to remind either of you how 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 much i detest all things gaming and all things mm. gamer so Hopefully you found a new hobby, one that isn't pathetic. <laughs> Remy, what's your hot take? Um, I mean, uh, Jeff Keighley, he's, he's been a journalist for a long time. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, and he's, he's kind of known as, yeah, like you say, like old school video game. He's obviously seen so much of like video game journalism over a long period of time and how the changing nature of video game journalism, how it's funded, how it's run, how it's operated... Uh, he's seen like a very large view of it. I feel like this, however, is another stepping stone for E3 itself, uh, which has just been bleeding like, uh, uh, in terms of its old, uh, repertoire of content for a long time. Uh, Sony didn't show up for a convention. Nintendo doesn't show up for a convention. I'm pretty sure the only reason Microsoft is not also bucking 
is because they kind of they must have been cut like some maybe maybe oh I shouldn't say must be maybe they were cut some kind of deal with E3 not to leave a little more leniency because they kind of need that big fish so to Microsoft uh, owns a theater next door to the convention center. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So it's not you know really hard for them to pack up their shit and move in. Huh. So yeah, I, I guess it's it's convenience, and it might also just be like, hey, E three, it's Microsoft's convention now. So like, why would we leave? Uh, but it, there's there's definitely a problem going on with E three. Uh, yeah. There's the first of all, I think it's a multifaceted problem where everyone realizes that they could be at an E three for themselves. Nintendo is doing fantastically with Nintendo Direct. They have wonderful social media presence. They uh, they are extending a lot of different ways of uh, smaller outlets towards uh, uh, speaking with fans. They're they're creating their own little theme park. So in terms of like physical location stuff, I think I think this is something that they don't need E three for. Yeah. And Sony, I, I don't know if if they're in the same way. They've got you know their PlayStation. I don't have a, a PlayStation, but uh, I know that they've got something like a play a Nintendo Direct. Um, yeah, PlayStation Live. PlayStation Live, uh, and that's one of the ways that they're uh, 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 talking with people who are using their services, uh, and they've got their own convention as well. That's uh, that's PlayStation something, right? Uh, PlayStation Connect, I believe. Nintendo Direct, PlayStation Connect. Okay, yeah, they've got their own convention. They 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 don't want to have to purchase space from someone. They would rather just flood it up themselves, right? Yeah, I think I, that's the big thing with those big companies. And Jeff Keighley is also seeing just like what E3 represents and what it is nowadays. I don't know whether or not it's a fantastic place for what it used to do. I think it's just kind of moved on beyond that. And there, that's the big reason why he doesn't want to join in is because like it, it doesn't serve the same purpose that E3 serves, which is the purpose that is best for him to come along with it. So I think that in, to best discuss um, the, the, the context of the, the tweet and why it matters, um, there's kind of two things we, we need to discuss. One is E3 itself, and the other is Jeff Keighley um, as a professional entity. So uh, some of the stuff you were saying, Remy, is you know the, what is the identity of E3. So Jeff Keighley also stated in his tweets that E3 needs to go more digital. It's not uh, – uh, the, the, the brand has a lot of recognition – but it can't just be constrained to the show floor. So um, we'll, we'll get into that when we talk a little bit more about E3 itself. Um, Jeff Keighley himself is, uh, he's been doing this for a very long time and he's really not that old. So as you could, if you, you know, as he said from the tweet, he's been doing it for going to E3 for 25 years. Jeff Keighley himself is only 40. So he went to his first E3 when he was 15. Um, and he actually got his start in the industry writing for something called Cybermania 94, the Ultimate Games Awards. I found that on Wikipedia. I didn't just have that off the top of my head. Um, it was like this not super popular television program that was kind of a, like a, it was supposed to be like an awards show, but like it was mostly just a, like a marketing stunt. And he, he wrote for that as their jokes and references writer when he was 14, which is kind of crazy. Um, so I, I have a, I actually have a lot of so Keely Keely gets a lot of flack in the industry because he does he was one of the hosts of G4 TV um, and 
he got his journal. So there's like two sides to Jeff Keighley. There's the TV personality side, the media presenter, and then there's the journalist. So uh, he really cut his teeth in the journalism side by uh, releasing the, the Final Hours series where he would go into these – he'd do these really, really long detailed exposés on teams and development process for games in their final hours of release. Um, and so I have a lot of respect for the journalistic work he does. Uh, that being said, he's also really seen as uh, Mr. So Damn Corporate um, because he is the one presenting for companies like EA, for Activision. And, um, you know, there's a certain amount of buying in to the company line that he does when he is doing this reporting. So when they come on, they say, you know, Assassin's Creed 17 is going to have 4 billion uh, quests. Uh, he's going to be like, wow, 4 billion. That's a really large number. Instead of being like, that's an obvious lie. You're going to be recycling materials. But that's just like, uh, he's not uh, Hunter S. Thompson doing, you know, an expose on the fucking Hells Angels. You know, he's not, he's, he's, uh, he's a stage personality. And there's a certain amount of kind of decor that you have to have when being that kind of stage personality. So, um, Jeff Keighley, I, I have a lot of respect for him, and I really think that he has a grand vision for where he wants the industry to go in terms of award shows. His Game Awards, uh, say what you will about them, is the, the closest representation of an Academy Awards for gaming that we have. And he said for a long time, for a really long time, that his dream is to have an Academy Awards-like style presentation for video games. And... Um, He's, he's definitely working towards that, and I, I respect what he does. That being said, he's not the end-all, be-all of E3. So the E3 Coliseum event that he holds is like a, a event where he sits in a room or a stage, and um, various different important people will come up. And it's basically just like a three-day live stream from the show floor where he talks to all the most important people. And it's like, a, it's like you know, eight hours of entertainment every day for three days. And uh, that's what he really does. And he hosts a number of the um, presentation shows. So, you know, if I can't remember which one he did last year, but he'll he'll present for various companies and be like, hey, I'm Mr. So Damn Video Games. I think people are realizing that E3 does not have nearly the pull as it, as it used to. Um, the novelty is worn off and there's no... I don't know, there's not a whole lot of profit to be made because there's so much more eyes you can get by just hiring a Twitch streamer to pr play the game for an hour. Uh, it, you know, gets 10 times the, the marketing yeah. goal. So I, I think that we need to establish exactly what E3 is because I feel like so many people have this vague idea of, of what E3 is. So essentially, there are three different kinds of conventions that exist. You have, you have the fan conventions, which are things like uh, the Phoenix Fan Fusion, you know, the Phoenix Comic Con that happens over there, or uh, like Horror Fest or whatever. It's like a fan convention where fans put it on, they, they, they rent out the lobby of a Holiday Inn, and a bunch of people come out. That's basically how it works. So, you know, if it gets big enough, they'll rent out a convention center. But it's, it's basically created by fans for fans. They, they, they book the guests. Um, and they, they sell tickets, but it's not really like a marketing stunt. It's, it's for fans to come out to try to find vendors and buy things. Um, and then you have the, the conventions that have become marketing stunts. So this will be 
like your Comic Cons and your Wonder Cons. Wonder Cons, Wonder Con to a much lesser extent, but definitely Comic Con San Diego is like you go to Comic Con San Diego to stand in line while ads are blasted at you for the newest Marvel film, and like you just camp outside for Hall H because then you can say that you did it. Like it's 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 basically a it's like a you don't really go to Comic-Con anymore to actually get swag. It's you go to perform. It's like to say that I did it. It's like a, it's like theater at some point. And, um, but E3 on the other hand is, is a trade show. Um, and the distinction is that trade shows are supposed to be for industry professionals to do like business to business meetings and for media to come see it and stuff. Um, and the question is whether or not E3 is moving away from that model. So, like, a lot of people don't know this, but E3 is actually held in the middle of the week. It's not supposed to be a fest. It's not supposed to be Gamescom, which has, like, half a million people, and it's just all fans. It's supposed to be, like, professionals going to show off their works to other professionals. That's how it started, and that's the, the, the core of E3. Um, like, it's Tuesday through Thursday, and you're not supposed to, like, take off work to go to E3. You're supposed to go to E3 for work. That's how it, that's how it works. Um, I, I've been to E3, I think this is going to be my seventh year. I, I can't really remember. Um, some of them blur together. I was very drunk. Um, and uh, the, way, the way it kind of works is that you, you, you book out your appointment. It's, it's not just the three days of the convention. It's the three days of the convention, and then there's three days before that, uh, where you also have the um, the, the, sh the the trade shows, the no, sorry, the uh, the showcases. So Microsoft will have their showcase. Sony will have their showcase. Well, they did. They they haven't. They won't this year, and they had, didn't last year. Um, Bethesda has their showcase, and they you sit down in a theater. They have this big presentation, and you really can't describe the difference between sitting down in the theater to see the presentation and the energy of the room versus streaming it online. It's, it's a really incomparable experience. So it's a really cool thing for, for media and industry people to go to. But like fundamentally, E3 really isn't different than like, well, it, it, when it started, it wasn't really different than like the world's largest tractor showcase, you know, where all the John Deere manufacturers get together and show off their latest tractor designs. Except... The only difference is that video games are entertaining and people want to get in and people don't give a shit about like the John Deere Tractor Expo. And, and then I should also mention that uh, there's something called Judges Week the week before E3, which is like a super, super exclusive event. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's when um, the biggest names in gaming uh, don hoods and execute. <laughs> they, they pass judgment on the... Uh, the, the most vile of gamers. Yeah. Uh, it's a once a year purge. Yeah. They call the smallest streamers so yeah. that they can <laughs> feast upon their blood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and Judges Week is something that's run before E3. It's far more exclusive and there's far fewer companies. And um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Jeff Keighley is heavily involved in that. That's just something to keep in mind. But the actual like E3 experience... Uh, in my, from when I've done it before, it, it's about seven days of work. And uh, it's not, like, fun. I always tell people this because they're like, oh, you get to go to Comic-Con and WonderCon and E3 and stuff. Like, this isn't a party. Like, you don't go and just, like, oh, my God, look at all the cool video games. Like, you're doing interviews. And if you're playing a game, you're, like, taking notes and stuff. This is, like, actual work. Um, and 
I I'm of the opinion that E three should be work, but um, okay. So well, look. I, so some people want to go in to play these games. Some people want to go in because there's like festival culture. Some people want to go in so that they can see the announcements there. Some people want to go in to buy the swag. There's there's a consumer driven focus towards wanting to go to E3. The consumers who go there for the festival event who are going there as consumers are only one aspect of how E3 is like uh, making a profit off of this thing. The other thing is like selling booth space. I mean, in order for you know a company to get a booth there, it's five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars. It can be upwards of that if they want like a really big space, like like some of the uh, the larger studios get those giant tent things. Uh, and that's another way that they're making money is that they're they're setting up space, they're selling tickets, but those tickets are are people you want to talk to, so set up a booth here. Uh, and then journalists they they house that uh, as another offering for both people who are there that there will be journalists there and there will be game developers there that you can talk to, and this space is allocated for that. Uh, Ted, I don't know if. Uh, uh, you could uh, tell me, but I don't believe that journalists get to come to E3 for free, right? No, we go for free. You go for free? Yeah. All journalists go to E3 for free. Yeah, media badges are free. I mean, you're you're there to cover the event. It's supposed to be your job, so to actually have to pay to go would be kind of shitty. Industry, it's like ten thousand dollars. Gotcha. Uh, so yeah, journalists are another offering. There's going to be a ton of journalists here. We're offering them stuff for free, and therefore you want to have like a booth or tent or, or just a ticket to come here so that you can talk to journalists. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like though, because it's so easy to reach out to people and talk to people, because like uh, like Jesse had said, you can stream games with popular streamers and get eyes on it. There's a lot of competition for what E3 is as a physical space festival, uh, and they want to move somewhere else beyond that, and they have to because Nintendo and Sony basically told them what you're offering isn't enough for us. Right. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, being like just a festival oriented uh, towards consumers, I don't know if that's the right thing to say. Uh, they're probably looking at how to make money off of like a very changing landscape of electronic uh, expo what it was the 30 electronic entertainment expo electronic entertainment expo so yeah there's there's a big tent that can be uh drawn and i think that they're looking to to see what could be drawn and either jeff Keeley is leaving because what's being offered now is not something that he wants or he doesn't think that it's worth his time okay so here's here's the weird thing about um E3. So what you're saying is very true, Remy. The E3 E3 convention is run by something called the ESA, and the ESA is trying to figure out how to make E3 more profitable. There's there's a really big question about whether trade shows should or should not have their end goal be to be profitable. But at the very least, you have to pay for the convention center. You know, like if if you want to think about like, hey, a trade show should really be for the betterment of the businesses. So the trade show shouldn't be turning a profit off of this. You still got to pay for the floor space and stuff. So that's that's always going to be a cost that is associated with E3. Um, and w- w- what you're saying about like, you know, what, what fans want is, is, is really true. And the, the, the thing that's, that's kind of interesting about E3 is that they're evolving in a way that is going towards a more kind of homogenous comic con style convention. That's what they're trying to do. So um, I'm going to pull up a little image here that I'm going to show to Jesse because he loves this dystopian shit. 
So you were talking about, Jesse, Disneyland for gaming. Yes. So their new floor plan is, uh, let me pull up the pitch deck real quick, is this. And you can't see it, Remy, but I'm showing it to Jesse right now. So as you can see, though, there's these eight circles. Oh, Jesus Christ. Those are what they call experience zones. So what you do is you stand in a line that basically the line takes you around the experience zone. It's like a carousel of, of fun. And while you're doing that, uh, sponsored ads blare at you, like entertainment ads blare at you. Mm. And so you you basically get churned through like a cow to the slaughterhouse, each of these experience zones. And uh, I, Hang on, Ted. Siri, where can I find a cheap euthanasia at this hour? <laughs> Um, uh, some people really like that. They yeah, like seeing so, the advertisements really, I know you're before jump anyone else. Saying if some consumers are willing to pay for it, then it's it's you know you know people they'll sell it. And I'm not disagreeing with you. If, if you know if the consumers like soil and green, who are we to say that they shouldn't eat it? <laughs> wow, no, that, that's not a comparison that fits. No, I, come on, give me a. I, what I'm saying here is that the the experience itself, uh, what they're trying to like promote doesn't sound like the natural organic find it yourself go to e3 check it out experience it sounds like uh, it, it 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 does it it comes off as incredibly dystopian like to be churned through these like media experiences while ads blare at you that have no um like the, the, what they're saying is that the ads will be they don't necessarily need to be disclosed as ads because they're being run at the convention so you can say like hey check out this new thing blah 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 and it's just Oh, we just found this at the at the convention center. You don't have to disclose that it's actually like sponsored content. Um, I mean, the whole thing is an advertisement, so right. So well, yes, you know, it's uh, all put... an advertisement, and if they're deciding to run it that way, they can. And you know what? They will be punished because perhaps other studios don't want to join into that. Maybe because Nintendo and Sony uh, don't feel like this is a good use of their time, they're going to have less of an offering for all these people who want to pay for their Disneyland of advertisements. If Jeff Keighley says this is not worth my time to go to for the direction it's going to, then then one of the big draws of going to E3, which is to talking to Ed, Jeff Keighley, is not going to be there. Okay, they'll first they'll, off, they'll never naturalize. They'll Keighley. neutralize. He's far above you peasants. Yeah. Jeff Keighley will not waste his time with, with you rabble. He is enclosed in a golden throne. He keeps the warp open with his mind. <laughs> All I'm saying is that, like, I, I don't know if this is a bad thing for... To Jeff <laughs> I don't think it's just, like, a dire, horrible, bad thing for gaming as a whole. Like, the, the festival has been changing, and it, it'll change. Who so, cares? Really, if there's other precedents, like, there'll be other good ones. Even if E3 dies, I don't give a shit. Like, there are other right. conventions for me to go to, you know? And, like... Basically, when I first started going to E3, it was like first off because it was a dream of mine. Secondly, because like I thought I could meet like cute gamer girls, and third because like a lot of the industry parties there have an open bar, and so like I was just going to like get hammered and play video games. So like if we lose E3, like it, it's not. I mean, there's other places. Yeah, that... there's a bar downtown that's just an arcade. Yeah, exactly. There's the Cobra Bar in downtown Phoenix. Like, no, I mean, what I'm saying is, is that for me. As someone who goes to these conventions for work and who previously, before going for work, went as a fan. I mean, I went to Comic-Con when I was like 12 years old. Um, I've seen the way that these things can shift, the way that they can ebb and flow. I don't think E3 is dying. Um, and with the larger companies pulling out, we haven't even had the discussion about like what that means for the show. What I'm saying is that it's interesting to see what E3 
is going through because it was originally, like I said earlier in this discussion, a trade show. It wasn't open to the public, but the public wanted in because instead of you know being a trade show for tractors, it was a trade show for video games. People want to be there. It's like the uh, the Adult Entertainment Expo. Like it's technically just a place for porn stars to talk to each other about like you know different dildos and stuff and like to sell sex toys to other industry people. But people want to be there because then they get to like you know rub elbows with Sasha Gray. You know like. That's that's basically you're going to have certain trade shows that are going to ha- draw a want to be there from the crowd because uh, from the general audiences because of the, the the subject matter and that's basically what E3 is is going through. Um, but uh, you know the point I, the point I'm making is that the when those people started asking in, E3 looked at them as a chance to make money. And the question is, is the ESA um, and the, the organization, is is the profit-seeking model and the, the general audiences the best solution? So when you when you do have this uh, general audience focus, so what they're saying is that like future E3s might be structured differently, where there's just one day for press and then three days for general audiences. Um, and, and that's really, really, really misleading because all three days are actually going to be for press and industry. It's just that that first day is when the show floors are going to be like clear, which I actually kind, kind of am into. Um, and uh, basically what I'm saying is that E3 is going about becoming Comic-Con backwards. Follow my logic here because Comic-Con started off as a fan show. You can just buy tickets. Then it grew year after year after year until it's the goddamn monstrosity it is now where it takes over all of downtown San Diego. Um, But what happened is, is that because Comic-Con was getting popular, more companies wanted to come and show there. So Comic-Con 10 years ago was about, well, I wouldn't say 10, maybe 15 years ago. It was about comic books. Like you could go and like see shows and stuff, but it was mostly about vendors selling comic books. Um, now, like, you will not be able to find a comic book vendor in fucking Comic-Con. It's all about the shows and the movies and stuff and the big studios that are there. But the studios right. got attracted because, you know, you get a quarter of a million people trapped in, like, one room. And you want to show them, you know, the newest trailer for the boys. It's just like... Well, yeah, that's that's just the, the general, you know, uh, move from, like, a niche demographic to to popular media. Yeah. Right, right, right. So It's a success story of Comic-Con. Right, but that's, that's the thing, is that Comic-Con is is a opportunity to advertise to a large group of trapped nerds. Um, and a lot of people decry it. Um, I don't really give a shit, like, personally. Like, the bigger Comic-Con gets, like, the more food at their free party, at their industry parties. So, like, I don't give a shit. Like, it can become as corporate as you fucking want it to be. Just keep, you know, sh- shoving shrimp cocktail down my throat. I'll be happy. Um, and for me... The bigger that these conventions get and the bigger that more of the talent is, then the press rooms also get uh, more prestigious. Like, um, like I interviewed M. Night Shyamalan at WonderCon like four years ago. Like, that was really cool. And um, never thought I'd be fucking doing that. But this is like when the shows get bigger, the press does benefit. So, like, I don't – I'm not one of the press that's like, Gerg, it should just be uh, all – industry people like i don't know i i'm of mixed feelings about there it. should be a a you know a water fountain for people and then a separate water fountain for gamers <laughs> um anyways uh 
And as long as they make the industry slash media experience like easy, I don't care. Like they have a separate metal detector for media and like a separate entrance. So like it's easy to get in. It's not that big of a deal. People just whine because they, they like to whine. Um, Comic-Con is, is actually a completely different beast though. That's, that's fucking impossible to get into and to move around. I, it's, it's, I could do an entire episode on just how I plan my schedule for Comic-Con because you have to like actually plan in the routes that you're going to take from one area to the other because it's, it's so impossible to move around. But um, like I said, Comic-Con, the direction Comic-Con went was that Comic-Con started as a fan show and became this media spectacle. Uh, love it or hate it, that's what it is. And uh, E3 is going in the opposite direction. E3 started as a uh, place with these companies in it to meet other ones of these companies in it and to meet with press. So it had these big draws, which then brought in the audience. It wasn't, you know, the advertisers coming to an audience. It's the audience coming to basically the ads. And I, I find that to be interesting. And that's where a lot of this crisis of... Uh, of ident this identity crisis that E3 is having is is coming from is that people want to get in and uh, the, uh, the the advertisers of course want to make money which is then strange that with more eyes on product companies like Sony would be pulling out and the answer is that they find that they can do the same thing digitally which then says okay well if you can do the same thing digitally then why not just have the digital side be for fans and then have the, the, the physical side be for this industry meet and greet. And then the answer is, well, because it's too expensive to have it for an industry meet and greet because the costs of E3 have gone up every year. Well, why have the costs of E3 gone up every year? Well, because now they're trying to make more money. And like, it's this reciprocal relationship where the, the losing of the identity of E3 has pushed out people that you would expect to be drawn in by the changes. That's what I find interesting. Yeah. Remy, do you get what I'm saying? To be perfectly honest, not really. <laughs> I don't. I don't see where the the debate lies in this. I mean, yeah, it's just the natural evolution of a of a, a convention. Like uh, they're 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 pitching their focus to be more towards consumers because they they see profit that way. Okay. I'll I'll make it even more simple. Comic Con drew in yeah. big companies <clears throat> by having a lot of people. Yeah. Yes. E3 is losing companies by bringing in more people. I find yes. that, that, that dichotomy interesting. It is interesting. Uh, I agree with it as well. I, I have nothing to add on that. I, I just see a lot of opportunity. If, if there's going to be different press events for physical location stuff, then, then that's fantastic. And it'd be probably fantastic for you because it's going to be catered towards your wants and needs. Yeah, I mean, uh, the more weekends that they can give me free shrimp cocktail, I'm happy. You know. Yeah, and and the people who want to be uh, at a festival that now gives them instead of you know this Jeff Keeley who who the fuck cares about that guy? I want to talk to Ninja because he plays the video games on Twitch. Uh, then 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 Ninja will be at E3 instead because it's a consumer driven event. There so you go. I do think. Um... The one thing I'm going to disagree with is I don't think the multitude of conventions is actually good for the industry. Like, I don't think that Sony holding their own convention and Microsoft holding their own convention is good for the industry as a whole. Because um, the, the thing about E3 is that by the companies having to battle with each other, um, the competitive market is that they kind of have to up their game. But also, um, 
they have to kind of cast a wide net and invite people that might be critical of them. So that's one of the big problems with the gaming journalism industry in general is that um, it's not terribly well established um, in terms of like names. Uh, I mean, like the gaming is still young. Uh, it's only been around for about like 30 years. And even Can I get a clarification on a point that is bad because they're going to have to bring their A game to compete? No, no let, me, let me finish my, my point. Um, so gaming journalism as an industry. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the gaming journalism industry. Um, sure. Not about the making video games industry. Um, if you are critical of Sony ever, they will fucking blacklist you. They're the big, they're the big dicks on campus. Um, and like working with them is incredibly difficult, especially as a smaller time publication, like dread central is relatively big. And, um, I used to be able to like, you know, get into, I mean, I still, so I still got into every Sony press conference, but like getting the confirmation that I was going was like two days before. And they, they just like, don't give a shit because they don't have to, because they're the big dicks on campus. Um, but I still got in, even though I didn't have a great relationship with them because it's a competitive expo. They, they need to try to get eyes on their product as opposed to eyes on Microsoft's product. So which is a good thing, right? Yes. Let me, like the the reason you were allowed in, even though you were critical of Sony's products, are because uh, because you they need you in. Right. Let me let me continue. So if I sign up for the Microsoft uh, expo, uh, the Microsoft showcase, uh, which is usually uh, the day before the Sony showcase, Sony's more likely to let me in because they want to make sure that I'm also covering that. If they they if they further break down the system so that Sony has their own conference, not even just like. Uh, press conference, but their own, they don't go to E3 and they have their own Sony thing and Microsoft has its Microsoft thing and Nintendo has its Nintendo thing. You you can't get honest reporting. It's like impossible because Sony just won't invite people that are... But you Sony. were invited. What? But you were invited. No, no, no. I, I need to clarify. I was invited to the Sony press conference at E3. So before E3, um, all of the big studios have their own showcase, which is basically they set journalists down in a room they play a presentation, people come out, you get to see first-time trailers, everyone claps. It's a lot of fun, actually. It takes about two hours long, um, you, and usually there's a before or after event. So, like, before, they'll they'll have a bunch of game stations set up and food and such. Um, and then after, they'll usually have some kind of mixer, um, uh, which is, you know, fun. Uh, I was always invited to those. What I'm not invited to is the Sony State of Play event. That's what it was called. It's not Sony Live. It's the State of Play. Uh, that's that's something I need to clarify. The PlayStation play, State of Play and their convention, their, their not convention, um, their expo or whatever is, uh, their live event is this PlayStation Live. That's that's what I meant to say. So just quick clarification. But uh, like I don't I don't get to go to their um, their their convention, like their Sony convention. Because the people that they invite to the Sony convention are IGN, Polygon, you know, Giant Bomb, the big ones, and PlayStation-specific publications. Uh, I know a bunch of people whose like readership is below a thousand, which is like really fucking low, and um, they still get invited to the Sony events because they're in the pocket of Sony. And if that's where we want the industry to go, then I I I don't agree. Like, so by breaking down the the, the larger ramification of E3 breaking down to separate events by studios is that you don't get honest reporting on it. I think that that's 
if that's true, I think that that just shows like a a demand for honest reporting. If you can't get it from those conventions and that's what people want, then they won't go to it for that. I mean, I, I feel like that there are ways that people still get honest reporting when they do want it. Right. I, I would My say that a bigger problem. Like E3, where everyone's forced into the same room. <laughs> or, or or the sub 1,000 journalists who aren't invited as well because they uh, they are honest reporting. I mean, heck, I'd say that there is a, an entire industry around maybe not honest reporting, but just blatantly negative reporting for whatever you want. I think this is this is less of a convention issue and more of a journalism issue, honestly. Yeah, I'm I'm not <laughs> saying that um, the the issue is like monolithic or one sided. What I'm saying is that. Uh, there are repercussions to this breaking down of the E3 into further uh, conventions that uh, a lot of people aren't really cognizant of. No, um, no doubt, no doubt. But I think that this is something that will be smoothed over over time. I mean, uh, conventions are not a surefire way to make money or returns on advertisement as well. I mean, uh, I, I, they're, they're incredibly expensive events to put on. They're incredibly expensive for a number of reasons. And a lot of people have been trying to say, we don't need E3. We can make our own conventions with booze and hookers uh, and blackjack. I forget the quote. Uh, <laughs> but that hasn't really put a huge return for a lot of things. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you exactly the numbers for BlizzCon, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not the, the surefire money pit with super directed advertising that Blizzard was hoping it would be. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would be uh, very surprised if it's been a smooth sale for, for PlayStation Live. Uh, I'm sure Nintendo Direct has had to make sacrifices. And as for a proliferation of all these events, if there's a, just a billion conventions, then many of them will die. Many of them will die until the ones that are good stay around, uh, and then there'll be less you have to go to. Yeah. Your, your schedule will open up. So this is what I think is kind of happening with, these con with, with E3 is big studios used to look at E3 as a place for the industry to meet and to show off their games and products to other industry members, which has its own value, you know, in terms of recruiting, uh, in terms of presentation to the press, um, in terms of just like swinging dick. If you're like the biggest dick on campus, you want to go to the trade show and like show that you have the biggest booth. And that's, that's like a really real thing in business, like um, is the, the ability to show off your, your kind of wealth and power. Um, and as, E3 uh, becomes more consumer focused. They don't get enough people for it to become like an, an ad spectacle that makes sense to do on the show floor. So what you're saying about digitizing makes sense, which is that, you know, Sony can go to the show floor. And um, so the Sony press event is, is always like insanely lavish. They have like this, like really nice catering for maybe a thousand journalists and they, they rent out this giant theater. And if you know anything in L.A., you know, if you want to rent out a whole parking lot, that's, you're not going to be able to do that for, without, like, what, a quarter of a million dollars? And um, and then, you know, some Bob the intern says, you know, we could just, like, stream this whole thing for, like, 12 bucks. And they're like, <laughs> well, that sounds like a good, better deal to me, especially if our whole purpose of being here is to advertise. So as E3 becomes more of a community event, it's it's like the the actual cost of going to E3 isn't worth it. But when it was just an industry event, it was worth it for the companies. But I, I and I find that to be kind of interesting is that by trying to so there's going to be a point though where E3 is going to have to draw in half a million people in order to re-entice these companies. At which point 
It's going to be very, very, it's going to be a very smelly weekend in LA. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, again, uh, I think that this is just more of like a natural progression towards something unknown rather than a, a deleterious effect. There's definitely going to be like uh, uh, problems that arise from it as, as they try to do this stuff. But I think that it's, it's not really going to even like hit the consumer side that hard. Honestly, I think this is going to be a way bigger problem for, for journalists that I think that, uh, that's that's the big thing. And in terms of like what needs and desires are on the consumer side, I feel like they're going to be set. They're still going to have online journalists. They're still going to have streamers. Uh, they're still going to have people who talk directly to developers, much like you do. Uh, they're they're not going to need footwork on the ground from you because uh, I feel like if if for some reason uh, you were on you know a TSA watch list, you were not allowed to leave. Uh, the, the the home you're in, you would still be able to pump out a lot of journalism. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Um, a lot of journalism, what you can do now is, you know, online, like a lot of the interviews that I conduct are over Skype, you know, as this podcast is evidence of. Um, but the, the thing about E3 is that for someone that's not Jeff Keighley size, someone that's, you know, Dread Central has like a over 100,000 daily views, which is really good. Um, but that's not enough to get flown out to uh, Poland to check out CD Projekt Red. That being said, when they are at E3, that is my chance to talk to them. Um, it is my chance to try to uh, communicate with a lot of these studios and how I, build, how I have built my network of connections over the years is going to events like this. Um, and you know what? If, if it's... Whether it's having to go to one E3 or to an Xbox event, a Sony event, and uh, a Nintendo event every year um, is is relatively non it, like it's that the, the distinction between those two scenarios isn't that impactful for me if I can get into all of them. But you know, when I go to E3, Sony is never going to fucking cold contact me until I have ten million viewers. They're just not. They don't have to. They don't give a shit. I mean, they hard. I mean, like IGN, Polygon, the big ones, they get contacted by Sony. I, I know zero small, me, even medium tier journalists that get contacted by Sony out of the blue. Even when I email them, like there's a one in ten chance I'm going to hear back. And I'm not trying to. Okay, I am talking a little bit of shit, but it, it, that's just the reality of it. But at E3, that was my chance where they actually like had to talk to me. And if I could get in there and like get a little bit my foot in the door. That's a lot of this industry is getting your foot in the door so you can get better coverage, so you can get more viewers. And for the media side of things, yeah, that's the problem with, with E3 breaking down. Um, and I, I think that for an industry that's so starved for any kind of quality journalism, I mean, start off talking about Jeff Keighley. Jeff Keighley specifically said the one thing he had wished he had done in his career more was more investigative journalism. Like, he said he really wished that he had time in his schedule to find out what the fuck was behind the Red Ring of Death. And that's the thing. Think about it. No one really knows what the situation is with the Red Ring of Death on the Xbox 360. We know what happened. We know that like half the consoles failed. And we don't fucking know really why. And that's the kind of journalism that's lacking in the industry. And if we're going to have a situation where the only people that get to go, and I don't know. Maybe that's what's best. Maybe it's best that the whole industry, the, the face value media portion of it, 
is just so degraded into kissing ass of your favorite company that the only people that actually get stories done are the people that just say, you know, screw it, and they do a bunch of mescaline in the desert, and then they they, they break into Sony and steal their documents. You know, maybe that's the kind of the, the shock to the system that we need for the gaming journalism industry to renovate. That being said, um, I think that E3 itself... Uh, the bigger it has to reach a certain point where it's big enough that it can draw these companies back in before if it's going to be a consumer show versus a trade show and i think that the reason jeff keely pulled out is either you know they were going to go with a different focus that wouldn't give him enough screen time or he just didn't like the the consumer the consumer focus he'd rather it be an industry show i don't know Okay, well, we need to wrap up so we can get to the interview. So, um, anyways, uh, Mr. Keeley, I wish you all the best. But, uh, you know, thank you guys for listening, and uh, I really appreciate it. Up next, we got Steve Gabry with the Portable Moose himself. Uh, I shouldn't say with. He is the Portable Moose himself. And uh, he's here to talk about talk. And he's here to talk with us about Sally Face, uh, an indie game that's got a lot of, a lot of traction. So, anyways, guys, uh, I will uh, check back with you. Hello and uh, welcome back to the Real Professional Co- Podcast. I'm uh, I'm pretty excited today. We got a we got a, a guest. I've been actually trying to get on for a while now. Uh, Steve Gabry with uh, Portable Moose. I guess he is actually the Portable Moose himself. How are you doing today, man? Good, good. Yeah, um, you made a uh, Sally face. Yep, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, okay. So I actually have like a, a ton of questions on it, and. Um, the, the first one is that it's been in development now for it was what four years or how long how long did it take to make the whole thing uh that's roughly right i, I mean it, it's hard to say exactly because i did start on it in my free time so i technically started early 2015 um that was like very limited hours and work breaks and whatnot um so five i mean it's been five years but like the first year was part-time yeah, no, I mean, and so from the first, when you first started working on it to when you got your first, like, the episode one, because it's a five-part series, and the first part came out in uh, 2016, right? Yep, yep. Um, so from when you started to work on it to when it was first released, that first episode, how long did that take? Um, just the from, let's see. So the first episode took probably about a year um, and that was mostly part time. And then towards the end of towards the end of that development cycle, like there was a couple months where I was on full time on episode one. And then I released uh, August two thousand sixteen, the first episode on Itchio. And then I did um, I did Steam Greenlight when that was still a thing, and uh, a small Indiegogo that fall of that year. And then then hit Steam towards the end of two thousand sixteen, uh, December it was. Yeah. Okay. Quick question. Do you say itch.io or itch.io? I, I've never known the correct way to say it. Um, you know, at first I was saying itch, itch.io, itch.io, and then a lot of other people were saying itch.io, and I was just I just going with that. I'm like, oh, wow, I guess that's the way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> <It's yo. laughs> 
Yeah, I always just say itch.io because, or itch or something. I don't know. Itch.io just sounds weird. Itch.io is a little weird. Um, I'm kind of used to it now because that's what everyone around me calls it. Yeah, on the prolific itch community. Yeah. Dude, I've been running like a indie spotlight series on itch itch.io stuff. Itch.io. I'm just going to call it itch. Fuck it. For the rest of the interview, it's just itch. Uh, on, on itch stuff. And there's just like so much stuff that comes out onto itch, you know? It's crazy. Yeah. When I first released uh, episode one, or there, I don't think I got any downloads at all for like a month. Yeah. Just lost in the, like a mass amount of games on there. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to, to talk about. You know, as a solo developer kind of releasing an adventure game with a weird premise, uh, how, how the fuck did you ma- do you manage to stand out from the crowd? Like, how do you market it? How do you build your following? Um, well, Sally Face is, is a little strange because, like I said, I was doing it in my free time and I wasn't um, I'm part of another indie team. And, like, I'm also, I was also doing that in my free time, so... Um, like this, this was never started off of being the idea of like being my day job type of thing, but it just kind of became that, um, just through some circumstances in my life, I, I, I got laid off from my job around the time I was like wrapping up the episode. So then I was just like, well, let me focus on this game and see if I can make some money off of this. And then I wouldn't have to get another job, mm-hmm. which would be nice. Cause that's what I was working towards is just being an indie dev full time. Um, I was working towards that for maybe seven years or so, but it's it's brutal. Yeah. Well, that's like a lot of people's dream, you know, is to be an indie dev full time. And all of my friends are indie devs. They're like, oh, I love my job. I'm like, how's the money? And they're like, don't don't ask. Yeah. 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 It's brutal, man. Like our, my first game with my other company was called Chromen and Wolfplane. It was a mobile game. And like we kind of just did mobile because that was the thing that yeah. was. Yeah, and, like, none of us, I don't know. Mobile was a mistake, I think. think <laughs> like, like, in general, like, anime? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's so hard to make money off of that, unless you're doing, like, some kind of freemium thing and, like, have really good in-app purchases, and, like, we didn't really want to do that. So, like, our first game did really well as far as downloads, but we, we didn't make any money off of it. Like, yeah. Got, like, 600,000 downloads and, like, no money. <laughs> Well, that's the problem with uh, mobile games now is that you, you kind of really only have two models for successful mobile games. You have the freemium model that basically just tries to milk as much money out of the player as possible. And then you have the like the kind of marketing stunt mobile game that doesn't really exist to make money. It exists to kind of promote a product. Yeah. And that's the space that I really don't have much interest in, to be honest. Like, I, I just want to make a game that I like and put that out there and have people pay for it. Do you remember when mobile was like potentially the promised land when games like Infinity Blade and Blade and Horn were coming out and people were like, oh my god, mobile's going to be the future. Ga- goodbye Game Boy and all the consoles. You're just going to be playing on your phone from now on. What happened to those halcyon days? Yeah, uh, I don't pe- People realize that the problem of uh, your phone battery lasting 20 minutes and <laughs> being like 500 degrees uh, wasn't getting solved fast enough. And also... Uh, any moron can pump out like like there's only two kinds of mobile games ones where they like you know it's like the easiest asset flip or raid shadow legends where it's all like <laughs> layers and layers of fake currency like just designed to find some saudi arabian prince to buy <laughs> to spend like twenty thousand dollars a week 
and everybody else just like it's a game with one person in mind so yeah Sorry, oh man irrele- that was irrelevant <laughs> no i mean i just was recalling when wait like i one day probably a couple months ago i downloaded raid shadow legends to see what it was and like i sat down with jesse and i was showing him the currency that you have to buy that allows you to buy other currency that allows you <laughs> to buy currency to re- replenish other currency and his eyes were just like they were beginning to fog <laughs> up with like the cataracts of like neo-capitalism you uh you, you ever play bloodborne you know how when you you're getting yeah. frenzied you have those blood spears shooting out of your head that was what was yeah. happening to me in like a coffee shop downtown <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I, i'm not really i'm not into like the idea of making a mobile game or even playing them like i have no games on my phone you're not yeah i I, I played Hearthstone for a while um, back before it was horrible. Um, I, I'm into like mobile card games. I usually play those like while at the gym because it gives me something to do while like standing on the stairmaster, things like that. But yeah. other than that, like I don't really think that the mobile space is like terribly good for extended play or the kind of creative games that uh, I like. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of, is there any any plans to bring Sally Face to the Android? <laughs> <laughs> Um, not currently. Uh, it's one of those things that it would be, it's like technically a good business strategy. Um, but I don't know if I'm, I, I don't know if I have the, like the, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to say, like the energy to put into that. Because yeah. I would basically have to like uh, rebuild a lot of the game and rebuild the controls and I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, even with a simple game, like, people don't realize how much work goes into just porting shit, you know? Yeah. So, um, I kind of, yeah, we were just talking about uh, getting popular and stuff. So, um, one of the, the things that really struck me about Sally Face is I, I had, like, I personally, I mean, I'm a guy that does video games for work, and I hadn't heard of it. And uh, I get an email from, I guess you had you had emailed a few press outlets trying to get some coverage for it. So they forwarded it to me. I wrote up a story about it, and it did, like, super well. We got, like, a ton of traction on it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, there's, like, a following out there for this. So I kind of want to pick your brain on, first off, how you plan to market it. Also, you know, building that fan base and what it's, like, been, been, like, interacting with that fan base. It's been surreal, honestly. Like, I, I kind of went to just, you know, building this thing in my room alone to, like, thousands of people getting so into it that they're like for at first it was like you know um fan art coming in and then um cosplayers and then people started getting tattoos and like it's just crazy um and it was really cool like in the beginning like inter- i was able to kind of answer any messages that came through and like interacting with the fans and then um but the thing is like as it grows it becomes so big that like you can't you can't like answer everybody, which kind of sucks. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a good problem to have, right? Because the game's getting more popular, but once you start getting more fans, then it's kind of hard to like interact with everyone. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think that um, I think that what you're saying is really true. You start something as a passion project, and you want to say tell every single person. You know, oh my God, I'm so glad that you love this. You know, what do you think about this and that? And then as you grow, you you kind of lose your capacity to be able to have that personal interaction. Yeah, and that was that was for me. That was like really hard at first because sometimes I'll get like really heartfelt letters 
or you know, not letters, but like emails and messages um, of people just saying like, oh my God, this game helped me through depression or I was considering suicide and like this game helped me out of that and like stuff like that. And I, I still try to respond to those, but I know that I'm probably losing some of those in like the amount of messages I'm getting now. No, no, I mean, and I would say that with the subject matter that you're dealing with, you probably get a lot of people that connect with the um what's the word i'm looking for it's it's not connect with different elements you know you're you're telling a few different kind of stories uh all with some pretty like deep context in the game it definitely deals with like some dark material you know depression suicide um i don't i don't delve like too much into that stuff but it's there and it's part of the story and I see a lot of people like, connecting with that aspect. Well, and I also think it has to do with the the art style, like the juxtaposition of the cartoony colors with the darker kind of grotesque. You know, it's the kind of things that appeals to someone that likes those older cartoons like Rocco's Modern Life or Red and Stimpy and stuff like that, where um, it's, it, it's, it's at a glance immediately apparent that it's cartoony, but also not for specifically children, you know? For sure, yeah. That's kind of... That was kind of um, the genesis of the idea was like, I grew up on those shows like Rocco and Ren Stimpy and Hey Arnold. Um, so it was kind of the, the idea was I wanted to make a, a game that was like, kind of like the old nineties Nicktoons, but like darker and more twisted. Mm-hmm. Well, some of those got some pretty dark and twisted. That, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially Ren and Stimpy. That's a, that one gets weird. <laughs> Yeah, you watch that as an adult and you realize a lot more things. Yeah, exactly. You're like, wow, <laughs> I, there's a lot of subtext here. <laughs> yeah, and I would say that, like, you know, with, with with Sally Face, especially with the, like I was saying, with the art style and the subject matter and things like that, it appeals to someone who uh, doesn't feel represented. Even if, the you know, the issues you're talking about don't go super deep into those issues. I, I even, I think that just the the the, the visual representation is makes people feel like they have a place when they might not otherwise feel like they have a place in most modern games. That's true. Yeah, I could see that. Um, like, I guess Sal himself is sort of, um, he's non-conforming. And I specifically don't, I specifically don't like dive into his sexuality or his orienta- orientation or anything, just so that players can kind of project themselves onto him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one thing I noticed uh, while playing. Is that why you went with the, de- the decision to have the character wear the mask, or where did that come from? Um, I mean, the, the mask and the visual of him honestly just kind of, um, I think it was partially a dream I had, and then um, just it started by this just random sketch I drew of this kid who had a, he actually started off the original sketch I had was like he had a face sewn on his face. Mm-hmm. and pigtails and it was kind of more like monstrous because that's just i draw creepy shit so <laughs> <laughs> um but then that's kind of like i was like oh i like this character and then i started thinking more about him and then it kind of grew from that so it wasn't really like i didn't do the mask specifically to make him more like um androgynous or anything but it kind of turned out that way mm-hmm. no i mean it definitely did i mean i i and i was always kind of wondering like the game the game gives you explanations for things, but it still never like fully reveals. Yeah, and that's I kind of like the 
um, I like the idea of like the deeper mysteries not really being completely solved in the way that um, it still allows for player creativity and like imagination. Yeah, because I think like mystery stories that kind of completely wrap everything, every single loose thread is explained in, in detail and wrapped up. Like I feel like um, it's not as successful as a mystery story. Well, yeah, and I will say that by the end, <laughs> there's a lot of mystery in this game. I'm tr I'm trying not to go into spoilers in this interview, but <laughs> by the end of episode five, it goes to some weird fucking places. Oh, yeah. I mean, you give Twin Peaks a run for its money for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's something that, like, I'll get, I'll, some people will ask me, like, do I make it up as I go? But I did, I kind of, I had, a, I had it mapped out since the beginning, and I was kind of excited to do the way I kind of built it was each episode I wanted to give myself something that I was excited about in the story to keep content, like, so I didn't lose motivation for the project, right? So, like, episode five has a lot of new, like, art things that, for me, were fun to work on. Um, and episode four had, like, some new game mechanics. Like, I don't, yeah, like you said, I don't want to give spoilers, but just throwing new things in there for myself to 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 keep it fresh, but also for the players to have something new. And so it's not kind of like five episode ones that are, you know, the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I will say that uh, that's one of the cool things about playing the game, having it taken so long to create is that each episode, you can see the evolution of not only the story, but also the time you're able to put into it. And you're also your, your craft as a creator. Thanks. <laughs> yeah i i just um you know what was what would you say is the episode that really you felt was the, the best representation of your your skills and your vision like when did it really all come together i think episode four mm -hmm. i think i think just i was i think i'm still like the most proud of that specific episode and i think um that's also kind of when the fan base grew a lot with, with episode four. Um, like the fan base was a decent size before that, but once I, once episode four dropped, it, it more than doubled like the fan base of the, the game. So, well, yeah, I mean with the, how you leave it off on episode three, it's, I can see why people would want to play the fourth. <laughs> yeah. Okay. In my original, um, well, in one of my original outlines, the episode four was actually going to be two parts. So it was going to be just a little bit longer, and it was basically going to be episode four and five were going to be the story of episode four, and then it was just going to end on how, you know, how episode four ends. That was going to be the end mm. of the first game. And then episode five, what ended up being episode five, was going to be a separate game. Mm-hmm. Is there still plans to make a separate game set in this universe, or are you kind of wrapped up now? Yeah, no, I still want to continue it. Um, there's still a lot of things that I, a lot of ideas and a lot of more elements that I want to explore mm -hmm. within this universe. Um, I don't want to just like, I, I don't want to just like keep pumping out games for it. Like two might it might end on two, two games. Um, we'll see what I do. Like I don't want to just milk the. the the brand or whatever. I don't know, man. Five Nights at Freddy's just came out with an AR game, so. <laughs> yeah, but is it any good? Um, 
I I am very good friends with their PR people, so I will refrain from making any official comments on the Five Nights at Freddy's AR I've, game. Yeah, no, I don't. Ha- I actually have never played those. They do look interesting. Um, I know that you put out a bunch of those Five Nights at Five Nights at Freddy games, right? There's a lot of those. Oh uh, yeah, there's uh, four of the main line, and then there's like three spinoff games, and then there's a non-horror game for kids, and then there's the AR game. Yeah. Well, and the crazy thing about those games is that the first, like, three came out in the same year. That's crazy. I mean, you look at how much it took to actually make it, and it's not a terribly complicated game, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I don't. I don't hate. I'm a lot of Five Nights at Freddy's is easy to like throw shade at because it's like you're constantly punching up at the guy that made a billion dollars, you know. And um, but I I actually I think that for a single developer just working on a pretty basic concept that did well, I I, all the power to him, you know. No, for sure. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I I kind of want to ask though about for specifically Sally Face, how did you? go about selecting what elements you would include in the game? Did it, did, was it like a checklist that you had at the beginning when going about creating it? Did it come up as you were making the game? Uh, just give us a little bit of your thought process. Um, so I had very specific ideas um, right from the beginning. Um, like I had the whole story outlined in a basic sense, but more of the, like the smaller details I would kind of work out um, before beginning production on each episode individually. Mm-hmm. So, like, when I was starting episode two, I would I would kind of take that arc that I had written and then start filling it in and writing the dialogue and um, designing the puzzles and things like that. But um, the elements as far as, like, the characters, uh, most of the characters were designed beforehand. Um, some of them... Some of them, like, I knew they were going to be there, but I didn't know, like, what they were yet until I started the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, the bigger elements, like the Gear Boy um, and Sal's guitar and things like that were kind of things that I had planned out beforehand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm more of talking, yeah, I was more of asking about the specific puzzles, you know, like, and, and the kind of the fun little, like, the Game Boy thing, like, Gear Boy or whatever, can't say Game Boy. <laughs> Um, how did that come about as being an element in each of the episodes? Yeah, so um, I did have that planned out in the beginning, and I just kind of, um, it was just, I don't know, I like, they're kind of based off of things in my life that I liked. So, like, when I was a kid, I had the, the, the Game Boy, and I really liked playing that and bringing it on, like, family trips and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And I was also into supernatural things, so I thought it would be kind of cool if this, if you had a, uh, like a handheld system that could kind of interact with paranormal stuff and like talk to ghosts and whatnot. Um, so that's kind of how that idea came about. Um, and then, so as far as like the specific games in it, so like in episode two, like you play kind of like little mini games that reveal like backstory of certain characters. Um, and those, I basically had the idea of going in, but then when I started production on episode two is just kind of like um how do i want to do that so i could have went in a couple different directions um with it and Mm -hmm. then i kind of wanted them to just make them like old game boy games like yeah no that makes sense i guess that you know outside of the, the the brass tacks of actually making the darn thing um 
you know, the, the purpose of this this podcast is to try to talk to people in the industry of kind of about what their journey was like so that other people listening might be able to follow their own journey. You know, it's, it's really scary going from zero to starting your game. How is anyone going to like it? How am I going to get popular, et cetera? So I'm kind of curious, how did you overcome your own doubts and your own fears about the success of the project? Um, for, I mean, for this particular project, it, was, it wasn't it was exactly like that for me because, like I said, I, I'm part of another indie team. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't supposed to be like my launching off game, but it kind of ended up like that. So when I was first making it, I didn't really think like, oh, how am I going to make this popular? It was more like um, I, the thought I had was kind of like I could see this being like a couple people on the Internet like it because it's weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it ended up being a lot more than that. Um, no. I, I guess like continuing the game that then once I started on full time, then I did have more of those thoughts of like, well, now I'm doing my dream job. How do I keep this? And mm-hmm. I hope that people like the next episodes. Um, I, I think uh, as part, part of my thought process, at least it was kind of like doing, doing what I want to do and not letting things influence me too much because I feel like you could kind of easily get wrapped up in like, Oh, what do what, how do fans want to see this story progressing when I kind of already had a vision for it? I mean, there's some value in you know seeing what's trending and whatnot, but I personally don't build games that way. I just build a game that I like. Um, mm-hmm. And I usually would recommend that to people rather than kind of worrying about what they think fans would like. Because if you like it, then you're going you're gonna to put a certain amount of passion into the project um, that I think will show to players. Whereas if you're just building something because you think someone will like it, you might not, you might not personally like it as much. So that will also show. No. Yeah. I, it's hard though, you know, cause like it's, it's really hard for an individual getting into this to balance the desire for personal expression with like the real need to like pay the bills, especially if they're trying to do it as like a full-time gig. Yeah, it's it's brutally hard to be honest. Yeah, uh, and a lot of a lot of like people who want to be game developers, like younger kids, would uh, will ask me stuff like that, like for advice. And I usually try to make sure I'm honest with them and say like, just the best thing to do is just start building games now. Like you don't, there's nothing really to wait for. Just learn. There's tons of free tools online, tutorials you can kind of dig into, and no. start. You, that's, I think that's the best way is just get experience and build like a couple of small prototypes. Like you'll learn a lot from that and you'll see how hard it is. And if you can't handle it, like maybe this line of work's not great for you. Like it's a tough. Yeah, not not even it. not even if you can't handle it. If if you don't absolutely fucking love it, you know. Exactly. Yeah, because you you're gonna be spending a lot of time on it. Well, it's like um. I frequently have people ask me, you know, on my side of the things like, oh, how do you get into like journalism? How do you become a video game journalist, whatever? And I'm like, if you don't if you don't have a hunger in you that makes you do this all the time, you're there's no fucking way. Like it's I wouldn't recommend the job to anyone, you know, (laughs) 
That's, yeah, exactly. That's how I feel about indie development. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's like, so I started, I started doing this about seven years ago. And I often tell people that like, you know, when I started doing this, there was maybe like 20 other people I knew just tangentially that were the same age as me. We're all getting started at the same time. I'm the last one still doing this. And I, I some days I don't even feel like I'm really the best or the smartest or the funniest. I, I, I don't feel like I'm that at all, but I am like the last man standing, you know? Mm-hmm. And with indie development, a lot of times the same thing is like, if you had put out the first episode seen that you weren't getting the a million people download traction, you know, and you just gave up, that would have been it. But you got to be able to look at the zero downloads and keep working. Yeah, exactly. I, I could have easily given up right after the first episode. Um, because it was literally not making any money. Yeah. And then you'd just be another one of the part one on, on, on itch, you know, part one. Yep. yep. <laughs> part one of a theoretical 5,000. Yeah. <laughs> it's a problem. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's like, it's kind of, for me, it's always great to see a solo developer make it, but I always think that, you know, for every one of these interviews I do with a solo developer, every time I go to an indie game showcase like uh, the Mix or Indicate or things like that, I have to like I always recognize that the ones I'm seeing there are like one percent of like or not even like a one percent of one percent of what people are trying to make out there. Yeah, I, I'm horrible with conventions. Like I haven't done any conventions for specifically Solid Face alone. Like I've, I haven't showed it. I've showed it in a couple of places. Like I've brought it along as like a side thing to my other team. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's just we've done a lot of conventions. We've done packs. We were in the indie showcase a while back. Um, we've done a lot of different things on the west coast, the east coast, and we never. I don't know. We never really see. They're fun and like meeting other indie devs is cool. Um, and sometimes you get some journalists coming and talk to you, which is nice. But we've never really seen like a a net positive from doing conventions. No. Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Is that you're never exactly sure where your marketing money is actually going. And conventions are just a rather large chunk to put in to not know where it's going. Yeah. It's, so, it's so, like impossible to know yeah. how that affected sales or visibility or whatever. Well, and that's and that's the thing too is that you kind of when you show a game off when you take an appointment when you meet with a journalist you're kind of taking it on faith that they're going to publish something about it, which it doesn't always happen. I mean, even me personally, I I will try to pump out uh, four articles a day while at a convention, and I have eight appointments a day. And some of those games I'm just not going to be able to pump out articles on because they're either not within my wheelhouse or there's no audience for it with my audience. And it's like it's always shitty to go back to the person and be like, hey, I know I took your time and I knew you had these high hopes that. I'd be saying nice things about you, but like I can't at this time for various reasons. And it's like, you, you and it, it's it's all these gut punches are just going to come at you during the process of being an indie developer. For sure, yeah, and I think that's totally fair as far as your perspective goes too. Like what you said makes sense. Like if it's not going to hit your audience or you don't have time, like that's cool. <laughs> yeah, we got like even with our first game, like I said, the mobile game, like we got some lucky breaks and like. We got really good reviews on like Touch Arcade and like uh, all that, and it just it didn't seem to do much for us. Yeah, well, that's the thing is that in terms of like actual positive reviews, like the positive reviews 
actually do very little for you other than being able to put it on your box. Yeah. And so that when someone goes to the arcade and they're scrolling down and they see your description, you can say five stars from Touch Arcade. For sure, yeah. I think it's one of those things like when you're first starting out, you, you're just kind of like, oh, yeah, so this is going to be huge, you know. But it's right. not really – it's nothing. <laughs> well, and I think that's the, the – the, even like – okay, so this is the problem that we're having in the industry right now on the media side of things is that the marketers, the people that are advertisers, et cetera – they have no idea like how much views are actually worth because it changes so much per channel. Like if you go on to video game donkey and he's doing a silly review of, I don't know, goat simulator or something like you actually have no idea how much a positive review from him will actually move the needle. Cause you don't even know if his audience is going to him for positive reviews. So these marketers are like, who do I sponsor? Who do I try to get eyes on our game? And it's it's really like it, it's it's so hard to tell because it's not like a one for one conversion rate on viewer to buyer, you know? For sure, yeah. And each channel and outlet will have different percentages, and I don't know. I always feel like that must be a really hard part of being an indie developer because you know your game was played by um, who was that YouTuber that's really popular? Um, Jacksepticeye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that probably brought a fair amount of eyes to your product, but you're never sure if those eyes are going to translate into actual sales because they might just watch him play it and then not buy it, you know? So it's always this weird give and take. Yeah, that's the, with Jacksepticeye, I did notice, like, because when he played the first time I, I was doing my Indiegogo campaign, mm-hmm. and, like, um, that... I didn't I didn't hit the goal because I was still pretty relatively unknown at that time. But I made um, I think like thirteen thousand, and I would say like probably half of that was from his audience, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, YouTuber is really it's kind of a double edged sword with YouTube. I feel like and streamers and Twitch and whatever. Yeah. Because they yeah. bring a lot of eyes to the to the game, but it's like yeah, a lot of them are just gonna watch it. Yeah, not play it. And and you have no control over whether or not they're going to hate it for no reason and then just talk mad shit. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Or they run into a bug that, you know, could have easily been fixed or something. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, hey, how's it going? Um, um, I was just wondering, like, I, I, I really like the art style. Uh, who, what, what, inspi- what inspiration did... Uh, well, I guess uh, you already did say that, uh, like, Brendan Stimpy were your inspirations, so um, maybe it's not kind of like, that again. Uh, you're good. Yeah, it was, like, a lot of the 90s Nicktoons, like, uh, Hey Arnold, Doug, Brendan Stimpy, Rocco. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Hey, J- Jesse, before you ask your next question, um, I'm going to use the bathroom real quick while you ask a question, so I'll be right back. Uh, how's your day been? <laughs> Been all right, you know, just running errands, nothing too exciting. You? Just chilling. Um, you know, got a lot of homework and stuff I'm doing, and work, nice. work stuff I'm doing. What are you? Uh, what are you studying? I'm uh, I'm doing history, history major, because I like political science, but political science is mostly bullshit. So yeah, yeah, it is fun. I like writing and. Uh, it's about writing about a subject, so. It's cool. Pretty cool. So, what's your what's your goal? You like you want to be a teacher? You want to be 
Uh, honestly, anything where I'm not dying in poverty, that's all right with me. <laughs> and it's a good goal to have. Yeah, yeah. Not. We'll see how attainable it is with a history degree, but you never know. Um, yeah, I mean that was that was me for indie dev for like the first seven years. I was just kind of working shit jobs and you know scraping by paycheck to paycheck, trying to make games. Other than uh, uh, Sally Face, what other games have you made? I don't see any. I didn't see any on your on your Steam store, so I assume. Yes. Not officially published, but just, you know, what other projects did you work on? So Portable Moose was like my solo thing. So Sally Face was my first solo project. But um, I'm part of a smaller indie team called Wither Studios. Um, we made a, Our first game was called Crowman and Wolf Boy. Um, it was a mobile game. Then we ported it to Steam. Um, and then right now we're working on a, a horror game called Amure. And so... Like a 2.5D horror game. Ooh, nice. Uh, what was it called? Emure. Is it out? Um, it's part one is out now, and part we're working on part two now. Where can I find it? Uh, it's on Steam or itch. Uh, Emure. Yep. I M U R E. Okay. Oh, this looks dope. It's nice. got a never-ending nightmares vibe to it. Yeah, you play as Will, who's like he wakes up in this weird mansion, and then uh, there's no escape from the mansion. There's no exit doors, but each door that he finds leads to like an alternate reality, which is haunted by a wraith. And you kind of have to piece together like what what they're doing there, and like and then you kind of decide um, if you want to destroy the wraith or save them. Huh. So is this part one of how many? Um, <laughs> it's a good question. We're get, they're, Wither's kind of in the boat of like, we don't have any money. Um, and everybody's doing it in the free time, so it's going to take a while for each part to come out. Um, ideally, basically, this uh, this game is, is cool because we can, ex- with the doors, like we have a lot of ideas to expand it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could keep doing parts, but it's kind of just based on like, well, is it gonna is it gonna get popular? Is it gonna take off? Yeah, no, that's that's actually I, I'm looking at it right now. It looks really cool. It's so weird when I find these games that like look cool, and I'm like, how the fuck do I not hear about these things? There's just so many games, man. Like, there's a lot of games that look really cool, and they just get buried. No, no, no. There's a lot of games that look terrible, oh, covering up a few games that look really cool. That's that's probably more accurate. Yeah. Like seriously, every once like uh, in a while, I'll 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 get the wild hair up my ass that I'm gonna like I'm gonna actually this week I'm gonna check out every game that comes out on Steam. Like not even playing them, just like checking them to make sure that they look any good. And by day two, I'm like, oh my god, just there's so like, I can't, yeah, I can't do it. There's so many. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, even back when I started doing indie stuff, mm-hmm. like ten years ago, it, then it was hard to get to get noticed now it's like way harder yeah i mean that's the thing is that with with steam i mean it used to be that you had to get greenlit on um now i think that you just um like have to have a working phone number and they'll let you on steam like you don't even have to have a full game yeah it's like you pay there's a fee it's like a hundred dollars or something oh wow yeah i I don't know 
I do remember a Steam game in Greenlit that you could buy, and it was just a file with a like a like a text document that was like the game's gonna be here. <laughs> so nice. the money's out there. Just generate free money on Steam with uh, <laughs> Do you remember the lady? Do you remember the lady that wanted to make the dragon simulator? It like got big on Reddit. The dragon simulator? Yeah, it was like some lady that was like, "You're gonna have like a full open world dragon." It was like back when Kickstarter was like starting to get really big, but like, and then it just kind of got like exploded with all these projects that would never see the light of day, and like things left and right were just getting kickstarted with no like no rhyme or reason. Free money. I can't believe- I can't believe you don't remember this. Uh, I, I I remember that she eventually came out with a demo that I got really, uh, really drunk and played once. <laughs> I'll have to check it out. That sounds right up my alley. Oh, I just tried to Google Dragon Simulator, and there's like a million Dragon Simulators now. Dragon Simulator multiplayer. Oh, here it is. This is it. I'm, I found it. Dragon Simulator multiplayer. Yeah. MMO. <laughs> Yeah, it was supposed to be an it was supposed to be a, an MMO. Uh, yeah, this was oh man, this was quality. It's a whole dollar. It's only a dollar. Come on, everyone, let's all get into Dragon Simulator. Let's bring it back. <laughs> let's give her that Dread Central PR boost. This is on uh, Steam. Yeah, I just <laughs> I just googled Dragon Simulator multiplayer, and it's just called Dragon Simulator multiplayer. So. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, this is good. So it's uh, Welcome to the World of Dragons. Dragon Simulator Multiplayer is a 3D simulator game in which you fight in PvP battles against other dragons or finish off AI characters that shoot from the ground. Now, I'm willing to bet the reason the AI characters shoot from the ground is because she couldn't program the AI for flying. <laughs> Sounds about right. Uh, um, Looks like they've released a few. Wow. There's <laughs> a few games there. Are you uh, excited for your your bold adventures in the worlds of dragon simulators? <laughs> Thrilled. You know, when you first started talking about this, it doesn't look as bad as I thought it was going to look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th- you're at like a d- different level though. Like the communities that you walk around in with the indie crowd, like there's some real bad games out there. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So, did you ever, have you considered making an open world survival crafting sim? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. <laughs> Oh god. Yeah, I um every once in a while I try to like look through the old ones that I got like 4 years, 5 years ago when they first started. The craze like first started. No, I mean, that's even longer than that. It's probably 8 years ago that the craze first started. And um like if any of them it's like abandoned project after abandoned project. Sure. A Steam Greenlit $25 early access abandoned project. Yeah, <sighs> it's, it's tough, man. Good time. I got so, Yeah. I'm just kind of curious, though. Why Why is it that you guys, your studio, has decided to do uh, their releases into, like, full releases rather than have the early access tag? Um, because essentially, I, you mean for the Emir? Yeah. Um, essentially, it's, it's not early access because it's a chunk of... It's basically a part of a game, so it's like a... It's a small game, basically, rather than like an early version of a game. Mm-hmm. Plus, when you do early access, you don't get, you don't really get the same visibility on Steam. It's kind of buried. 
Yeah, I don't know. I guess I guess it is hard to for the visibility aspect, but at the same time, like you're going to get people whose expectations are that this is going to be. I don't know. People are always going to. I don't know. There's there's going to be negative opinions no matter what. I guess. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's 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 tough. Like just how you want to build it, how you want to market it, how you want to sell it. There's a lot to consider. Yeah, what's uh, what are some of your favorite games that they're out right now? Um, I just actually recently I've just played through Control, and I That's... really like that a lot. Yeah, I love that. It was like SCP the game. Yeah, yeah, and it was just super fun. Like I, I like the whole thing was really well done. With like the gameplay was super fun. Yeah, so fun story. I was interviewing them at E3, and um, I was talking to their narrative director. And I was like, so, like, why are you, why, why haven't you revealed yet that it's a secret Alan Wake se- sequel? And I was just kind of joking. And they were like, uh, what? How did, and they were like, uh, because it is, like, actually in the same universe as Alan Wake. You can find documents that confirm that and stuff. Yeah. And I was, I was like, oh, shit, I figured it out. <laughs> well, the logo for the, their, like, fourth DLC or whatever has Alan Wake in the logo. Well, I mean, that's now it's revealed, but this is before they had the game had come out and they had revealed all that. So they were kind of like scrambling. <laughs> that's funny. Damage control. Yeah. Um, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, basically, it was funny because like then I said, or is it a secret control sequel? Not control sequel, uh, Quantic Breaks sequel. And they had this very long explanation for why it can't legally be a Quantum Break sequel. So <laughs> I think they kind, they kind of went into like over PR damage mode because they're like, oh, we can't reveal that it's that. But now that you've asked this, we also have to tell you why it can't be this. That's fine. Yeah. So a lot of the interview just became them explaining to me the, the legal uh, underpinnings of their, their franchise. <laughs> Uh, um, there's a lot of great games coming out that I just I don't have a lot of time to play. Yeah, um, but kind of like I've been taking this month a little bit slow on work and just kind of taking a little more time off just because I, I mean I was basically crunching for like three months before the holidays. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, so what was the crunch like towards the end there? Um, it was stressful. <laughs> yeah, I can it imagine. Was, yeah, I mean. You're testing, adding translations, um, you know, fixing bugs, and then things crop up that are like make no sense, and you're trying to figure out what the hell is happening. And then you fix one thing, and then another thing breaks, and then it's just a lot of long hours, and it's it's just stressful because like, well, now I have a deadline because I've announced the, you know when it's coming out, and it has to yeah. be by then. And I, I also added uh, um, GOG, so then I had to get that functionality working. Yeah, I, I'm kind of kind of. How do you manage your time, though? Like, you know, a lot of a lot of developers go through crunch, but how do you suggest that someone starting an indie studio out there actually like budget and manage their time? Oh, that's kind of it's a hard question because for the longest time I worked really unhealthy hours, and I can't really recommend doing that, but I think just like that was just the drive I had, right? It's kind of like that thing we were talking about earlier. Like that was the drive inside me that I I really wanted to work on these games, so I, I kept working on them, and I would work, you know, 60, 70 hours a week or more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that 
that is not sustainable at all. But I worked that way for a long time, mm-hmm. especially when I was doing two games on the side and a full-time job. Um, so, yeah, it's hard to say like what I recommend because I recommend trying to trying to keep your sanity and like having a good work-life balance is important, and your health is important. Um, so avoiding crunches is, is something I know is like a hot topic now, but it's really hard to avoid crunch because oh, yeah. it's, it seems almost impossible to be honest. Well, and it's, it's even harder when it's your crunch, you know? Yeah. And I mean, the, the best way you could avoid it is just, I don't know. You see, you could say like, well, I'll have the game completely finished before I even start marketing it. But then it's like, well, you have these, a couple months of doing what mm-hmm. just marketing the game and then but i feel like at that point you're still going to say well since i have this extra time there's going to be that thing in the back of your head that's like well i have extra time let me just add this you mm-hmm. know yeah i mean that's the thing right is that if you're really passionate about it crunch is like a crunch crunch for indie developers is different than crunch for like rockstar games you know like for you crunches i want my game to be perfect what little nitpicks am i going to do crunch for rockstar games is like your boss is telling you to work 40 hours a day (laughs) yeah yeah that's true and they're on salary so they're not really getting extra money for it yeah as as opposed to you who's just raking in the big bucks now (laughs) uh um Okay, so I think we're coming up on our, our uh, hour mark here, so I, I do kind of want to wrap up. Is there anything that you want to want to talk about before we uh, get into a conclusion here? Um, I don't have anything specific, no. I'm just, I mean, at this point I'm kind of working on um, hopefully adding more language support to the game mm-hmm. and um, potentially console ports, but I haven't really talked about that yet. Yeah. Um, well, is is there any message you kind of want to give to the fans out there? I mean, you were just started this off by saying you don't get a chance to talk to them all. So, is there anything you want to say? Um, I'm just. I mean, I do. I try to engage with them on social media when I can, but like, um, I'm definitely super appreciative of of their of their love and support. Um, and like, even though I can't reply to everyone, I still try to read their messages if I can. Um, and like, they're. I mean. There's so much motivation comes from just the fans' love and support. Like, it's crazy. I'm super appreciative of them. Yeah. No, I imagine. It's like um, every time I get a traffic spike and I realize that people are actually, like, looking at my stuff, I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I can go on one more day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I'll be having, like, a really depressing day and then I'll, see, I'll happen to see, like, a really nice message from a fan or something and that really helps, like, helps me through the day, you know? Yeah. Jesse, is there anything you wanted to ask at the tail end here? Um, what's your favorite dinosaur? <laughs> uh, hmm. Velociraptor? I don't know. <laughs> That's all the questions I got. Thank you. All right, cool. Um, I just want to say, you know, guys, thank you for so much for tuning in to the uh, Real Professional Podcast. It's been great uh, talking to Mr. Moose himself here. Uh, the Moose is on the loose. Uh, I'm wondering how much of a boost you guys got in traffic from the the John Travolta movie, The Fanatic, where his main character's name was Moose. So I don't know. Just keep keep... (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, if you liked it, we've got a ton of other episodes at dreadxp.com. Just check out the Real Professional Podcast. We're on SoundCloud. Go ahead and follow us there if you have some time. Also, follow us on Twitter at at dreadxp. And um, 
honestly, guys, thank you so much for listening in. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll uh, look forward to seeing or you hearing me. You know what? Bye. Bye. Okay. And that's how we're going to. And that's how we're going to end it. I'm making a video to send extra energy, extra love and support to the President of the United States, illegally destroying this republic, the mostly duly elected by the working class people of the United States of America, mostly, who doesn't uh, bow, who chose a president who would save us from uh, destruction by thieves, liars, 53 million lives. And for those cheering, because uh, they're so ignorant that they don't even understand that means that now it's open season on any American is something 